0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are picking up tonight right where we left off a couple of weeks ago. You can turn to Job chapter 10. One of the great inequities of human life is that sometimes it seems like those who are doing well, who are trying to follow after the things of God, who are trying to live lives according to the Bible, sometimes they are the ones who seem to suffer and have difficulty The part that makes that really difficult for us is that we see people who aren't even trying, who don't even care about the things of God, who aren't even trying to live biblical lives, and yet they seem to be doing just fine. They seem to be prospering. We even write songs about it. You may have heard the song, Tempted and Tried, at some point in your life. The first verse is, Tempted and Tried, We're Oft Made to wander." Why it must be so all the day long, when there are others gone on around us, never molested, though in the wrong. Well, that's kind of what Job is going to get into. The third of his friends is going to comment. (coughs) We're going to read that tonight of his so-called friends. But first, just like the pattern we've been seeing the last couple of times that we've looked at Job, we're going to hear his lament first. And he's actually, for the first time, going to start challenging God a little bit. In fact, if you would, Tom, turn to chapter 40, verse 8, and hold on to that for a moment. Because Job, I think, at this point, is starting to get frustrated. Here his three friends have come, apparently as moral support, and what they've done to him is just give him a good tongue lashing and tell him how guilty he is and tell him that he must have done something or else these terrible things wouldn't be happening to him. And that's going to happen yet again tonight. And I think Job is just to the point in his pain and in his sickness where he's starting to push back a little harder. But in that effort to push back a little harder, he's going to start charging God a little bit and saying, if he was here I'd have to know what the reality of this is. I'd have to ask a few questions. And and so we're going to remember that God, when he shows up later, is going to say, really? You want to justify yourself to make me wrong? That's what Tom's going to read for us in a little bit. So chapter 10 starts with Job looking at the fact that he himself has been righteous, has done the right things, and look at the state he's in. But then when he looks around at other people, including his friends, they seem to be at ease. And when he looks at those that are unrighteous, God seems to prosper them. And this is the the next conundrum for Job. And so he's going to finally say, God, you made me. You created me altogether. Why would you just cast away something that you went through all the trouble of making and creating? So chapter 10, actually we're going to start at the very end of chapter 9 to kind of give us context because that 10 right there gives us the impression that it's a new idea starting. But it's a continuation of verse 33 of chapter 9 where Job is saying there isn't any mediator between God and I. There isn't a judge. There isn't an umpire. There isn't anybody who will listen to God's side, listen to my side, and then mediate between us. And since there's no umpire between us, I think that's part of the reason that in chapter 10, he starts defending himself. Up till now, we haven't seen Job quite take this tact, but you can tell that it's starting to get to him. So chapter 9, verse 33 says, there is no umpire, no decider between us who may lay his hand upon us both. But let him, let God, remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him, terrify me. In other words, Job is saying, I'm at the point where I'm in so much pain, and I've lost so much, all my money, all my children, all my cattle, everything, I've lost so much that I'm at the point where I'm afraid of God. I had somebody say to me years ago, as they were watching some of the things that Christians go through, they said, I think I'm a little afraid of God now because I realize that God is willing to put his people through all kinds of trials, and that scares me. Well, that's what Job is saying. I wish that the fear of God, the dread of God didn't exist in me, but look at the state I'm in. Let not the dread of him terrify me. And then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in and of myself. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. And I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why thou dost contend with me. So he's saying, if God was here, if there was an umpire, if I could argue my case, then I would say to God, let me know why you're doing this to me. Why are you contending against me? I'm on your side. And yet you put me in this state and yet you condemn me. Is it right? Is it right for thee indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of thy hands? And to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? There's the reality of human life. It says, I'm righteous. I'm doing the right things. I've been sacrificing to you. I've been worshiping you. And yet you've put me in this state. And is this right? Is this correct that you would do this? Well, Tom, this would be a good place to insert chapter 40, verse 8, if you would. Will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's God speaking. And so if you want to know why God would say that to Job, it's because of this. Because Job has reached the point of saying, is this right what you're doing? Because I look around and it seems unfair to me. I look around and see that I'm going through this oppression and, and you're contending with me. And yet I see the wicked everywhere and their wicked schemes are going on. And yet you seem to look favorably on them. You're not putting them through this. It would make perfect sense in Job's mind. If when people did wickedness, God put bad things on them. And when people are good and people are righteous, then God gives good things to them. And that's the way so much of religion philosophizes these days they assume that God should always punish the wicked the wicked should not prosper and that the righteous should have an easy ride of it and yet that's not the way it seems to work that's not the way the God of the Bible actually is and Job's going to get that in a minute so then he asks God do you think like men are you like humans verse 4 says hast thou eyes of flesh Or dost thou see as a man sees? Are thy days as the days of a mortal? Or thy years as a man's years? Now the reason he's asking those questions is because his friends have been seeking out his guilt. His three friends have been saying, you must have done something. You must be guilty. And so now he's saying, are you the same way, God? Are you like a man trying to search out my guilt? Verse 6, after he has said, Are your years like a man's years that thou shouldest seek for my guilt and search after my sin? Is that the way you're working, God? That, That you're doing all this to me because you have found some sin in me because you're like my friends here who are convinced that I must have done something wrong and therefore you're punishing me? But according to your knowledge... I indeed am not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Your hands made me. This is what he's going to argue. You made me the way you made me, and you know I'm an upright man. And why then would you trash something that you've made, that you've formed? Your hands fashioned me altogether, and would you then destroy me? Remember now that thou hast made me like clay, would thou return me to the dust again? Didst thou not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese and clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? What he's getting at when he says in verse 10, did you not pour me out like milk? He's giving examples. With milk, what do you do? You pour it. With cheese, what do you do? You curdle it. You've clothed me together with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You did all that. You made me the same way that somebody makes cheese or the same way that somebody pours out milk. You made me all together. And beyond that, verse 12, you have granted me life and loving kindness, and thy care has preserved my spirit. He's saying this has all happened in the past. You're the one that made me, that preserved me, that took care of me, and yet... These things thou hast concealed in your heart, and I know that this is within you. Now it gets even more difficult. If I sin, thou wouldst take note of me, and you would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. But he's none of those things. He's righteous, so he says, and yet here I am the righteous one, and I dare not even lift my head. I can't even in my sickness, in my depression, in my pain, I dare not even lift my head for fear that you're going to come get me again. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am seated in disgrace and conscious of my misery. And should my head be lifted up, thou would hunt me down like a lion, and again you would show me your power against me. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I would get this. If I had sinned, if I was wicked, then woe to me. Fair enough. Do this to me. But I'm righteous in what I've done, and I can't even lift my head. In fact, I'm fearful that if I lift my head sort of like an animal poking his head up above the grass, that's when the lion goes, there he is. He's afraid to even lift his head Because he said, God's going to hunt him down like a lion. And again, you're going to show your power in me by doing this kind of damage to me. Thou dost renew thy witness against me. In other words, you've already done all of this to me, all this bad. And you would do it all again if I lifted my head. You would renew your witness against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Why then have you brought me up out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. Carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my days alone? If that was the case, if I was born and then immediately died and went straight to the tomb, then maybe he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do this to me. Would he not let my few days be alone? And would he not withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer? Before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of utter gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. So he said, before I went to the tomb, if I had just had a short life, at least I would have had a little cheer in that short life because I would have known what it was to be alive. But I should have gone right from the womb to the tomb. The very fact that my life has been extended has given God opportunity to do this to me. And Job is reaching that point of saying, and I don't deserve this far, then, the Naamathite, answers Job. And man, what a good buddy this is. <clears throat> this is a friend, to pal. I know I just used a real southern phrase. He's coming right at you, good buddy. What a good friend. He is going to start right out by making Job feel bad and saying that his words are nothing and pointless. And then he's going to say, You're empty-headed. You know nothing. But he's going to bark a bunch of bad theology at him. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? In other words, are you going to be found guilty just because of all your words? You keep talking and talking and talking, but that's not going to make you any less guilty. Shall your boasts... Silence, men. In other words, now that you've boasted about your righteousness, is that enough to make us not talk back? And shall you scoff and no one rebuke you? For you have said, my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes or in God's eyes. But would that God might speak. Well, God's going to. God's going to show up and he's going to speak and he's going to say, I am against so far." He has not spoken of me what is right. But at this moment, Zophar is going to say, I would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. Now, the NASB says, for sound wisdom has two sides. The Hebrew word that's being used there actually means folded or doubled over. So what he's really saying is, It's hard to pierce. It's hard to get through because it's been doubled up and folded over. So sound wisdom is difficult to dig all the way through. For sound wisdom has two signs. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Okay, that one kind of made me stumble for a moment. I had to read a couple of commentaries. And what in the world could so far be meaning by saying, know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. I thought, is that is that like one of those God does his part and you do your part? Was this some kind of synergy he was talking about? No, what he's actually saying is you deserve twice as bad as you got. In other words, everything you're complaining about. All this pain and all this loss that you're going through, you're going through because of some sin you won't admit to. But we know you're twice as bad as even you're willing to say, and you actually deserve twice what you've got so far. What a friend, huh? What a buddy. (laughs) Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? They're deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he pass by or if he shuts up, that means if he closes a man up, or the opposite, if he calls an assembly, then who can restrain him? In other words, if he passes by a man or if he shuts up a man, Or if he calls an assembly to himself, nobody's going to stop his hand or say, what are you doing? Who can restrain him? For he knows false men. He's accusing Job here. For he knows false men. And he sees iniquity without investigating. Remember, Job just got saying, are you like a man that you have to investigate me to try to find my iniquity, to find my sin? So Zophar's answer is he knows iniquity without even investigating it. And an empty head, which is what the next Hebrew word is, an empty head, a vacuous person, the NASB says an idiot. He's calling Job an idiot. And an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. So when a pregnant donkey gives birth to a man, that's when you're going to have any intelligence. What a friend. Verse 13. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. So now he's doing the same thing that the other two men have done. They're saying you just need to repent. You just need to admit that you've done something wrong. Just admit to God what you've done and then God will lighten up on you. He's doing all this to drive you to repentance and you refuse to repent. But if you would just admit and if you would just put that sin away from you, then your life's going to go much, much better. Then indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect. And you would be steadfast and not fear. And you would forget your trouble as water that has passed by, you would remember it. it. What he means by that is if you're standing looking at a stream of water, or let's make it a mighty rushing river, if you're watching water go by, The water you're looking at at this moment is not the water you looked at two minutes ago. That water's already gone downstream. And he says, that's what your problems would be like. They'd be like the downstream water if you would just repent and just admit that you did something wrong. Then you'd be steadfast. You wouldn't have to fear. You'd forget all your troubles. It'd be like water that passed by and you would remember it, but it'd be gone. Verse 17 And your life would be brighter than noonday. And darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust because there is hope. And you would look around and rest securely. And you would lie down and none would disturb you. And many would entreat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. There it is. See, you must be wicked. Because if you were righteous, all that good stuff would be true of you. You'd have all that good stuff going on in your life, but that stuff is not happening. All these troubles are happening to you. Therefore, you must be wicked. Just admit to your wickedness. The eyes of the wicked will fail, and there will be no escape for them, and their hope is to breathe their last. So that's, again, a proof, because Job has been saying over and over, I I just wish I were dead. I'm suffering so badly that I wish that God had killed me in my youth. Straight from womb to tomb. And now he's even accusing him over that rather than empathizing over the fact that Job is in such pain that he wishes he could die. Instead, he just simply says to him that you're evil because the evil, their only hope, is to breathe their last. And since that's your hope, that's proof you're evil. So Job then comes back at him. And this is the beginning of one of the longer speeches of Job. We're not going to get through all of it here tonight. But Job responds, and this is kind of caustic, truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. In other words, man, you three must be really smart, and when you die, nobody's going to know nothing, (laughs) because man, whoa, the wisdom you have poured out on me, that is something. But I have intelligence as well as you. And I am not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and the blameless man is a joke to you. He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. Do you get what he's saying there? This has been one of my complaints. I'm I'm going to step aside for just a moment because this is one of my complaints with so much of name it, claim it, prosperity preaching type Christianity. You can find somebody on TBN just about any time of day who has a program whereby you can improve your life. And it's always set up on the premise, just do it like I did it and you can be rich like I am. And it's always somebody whose life has gone pretty good so far. So if they just happen to have never had a bad sickness, they're there in front of the TV camera saying, well, you can be as healthy as me. If you just eat like I eat and do what I do and exercise like I do and you just live like I do and tithe, then you definitely, oh, and buy my new DVD and make me rich, then you too can. Or they're just somebody who's had the very good fortune of having a marriage that has worked out. And they can't wait to say, if you've gone through divorce or you've gone through marital problems, that's because there's some sin in your life. And if you had just been like me, because I'm the righteous and the holy and the good one. It's always people whose lives have gone good who are telling the rest of us that if we had just done it their way, somehow life would go better for us. And that's what he's saying here. He said, the one who is at ease holds calamity in contempt. Yeah, you, you hate seeing calamity come because you're at ease right now. I'm in pain. I'm having all kinds of trouble. But you three guys, life's going good for you. And because life's going good for you, you think from that platform, you can tell me how bad I must be because my life is in such disarray at this moment. That was a problem for Job, the oldest book in the Bible, and it's a problem today, that people who are doing well love to look down their nose at people who are going through trouble, when in fact, if you're thinking biblically, it's the people who are really close to God who are the ones who usually go through the trouble. Just look at the martyrs, just look at the apostles, as I've often said If the name it, claim it, prosperity, have a good life thing, was the true, genuine theology of the Bible, you would think that at least one of the 12 apostles would have actually done it. But no, they all died horrible martyrs' deaths. So the truth of the matter is those that belong to God suffer in this world because this world is not our home. And the same way that Christ was hated without a cause, we are going to be hated without a cause. Jesus said that. And so then you go through this life and you have your struggles and you have your pain and the the struggles of this life and the sickness you go through builds up your faith and your confidence and your dependence on God. And then the world looks at you and says, you must have done something wrong. You should do it more like me because look at me, I'm at ease. But sometimes I think, and you can agree or disagree, this is just my thinking. This is Jim just saying something that the Bible doesn't directly say. Sometimes I think if your life is too easy, maybe God's not for you quite so much. Because Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. When you're kind of going through life on easy street, maybe God's just letting you go your own way and do your own thing. And you're going to end up at the end of that hearing, I never knew you. That's just me speculating, but it certainly seems to comport with what the Bible teaches. So Job says to his friends, he who is at ease holds calamity in content, as prepared for those whose feet slip. Like, see, calamity when it comes, the calamity is prepared for those people who aren't walking the path. They're slipping. And the tents of the destroyers prosper. And those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power in other words the goodness that's happening to them the power they have in this life it is God who gives them that and yet as a result of them having that they end up prospering and provoking God they're secure but they provoke God in the doing and yet it's God who gives them the power to live those lives and they don't even give him the credit But now, verse 7, but now he's going to say, but now ask animals, ask birds. He's even going to go to the fish. He's going to say, ask them. Even the brute animals know that God's in charge. Even they know that they don't find food unless God feeds them. Even they know that God controls it. Why don't you check with the animals? Because a minute ago, you compared me to a donkey. Check with the animals here and see if they don't know more than you. But now ask the beasts, says verse seven, and let them teach you and the birds of the heavens and let them tell you or speak to the earth and let it teach you and let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing. And that all the breath of all mankind is in God. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with aged men. With long life, there is understanding. Job says, I've lived long enough that I've got some wisdom. You just told me that wisdom, true wisdom, sound wisdom, is really difficult to find. In fact, it's doubled over, it's hard to get through. He's saying, well, the ear, that's what it's for, for listening and testing words. And the palate, that's what it's for. It's for tasting food. The same way wisdom comes along with being an aged person. And with long life, there is understanding. And Tom and I are getting really wise. In a hurry. I've got a story for you on that later. Oh. A wise story. A wise story, it will be, absolutely. Now he's going to speak of the power of God, and this is going to be echoed by God later on, but Job now is kind of getting his mind right. A moment ago, he was saying, if God was here, I'd ask him some questions. Now that he has heard what Zophar has said, he is again going to go back to defending God's absolute sovereign control over everything, because after all, It's in God's hand that the life of every living thing exists and the breath of all mankind. So in verse 13, he says, with him, with God, are wisdom and might and to him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. Behold, he restrains the waters, and they dry up. And he sends them out, and they inundate the earth. By the way, there he seems to be confirming a flood. With him are strength and sound wisdom. And the misled and the misleader belong to him. Isn't that a great phrase? Both the misled the one that misled them the misleader are still in the hands of a sovereign god he's in control of all mankind even the ones who don't understand him he makes counselors walk barefoot all he's going to do now is start doing some contrast these are the high and the mighty these are the wise these are the people that men look up to and he's going to say god takes them down to nothing If he wants to take them down, he'll take them down. He makes counselors walk barefoot, and he makes fools out of judges. He loosens the bond of kings, and he binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot, and he overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech, the people that other people look to, tell me, give me your sayings. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and he loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness to light. He makes the nations great and then destroys them. He enlarges the nations. And then he leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. And behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know. I also know, and I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Oops, Oops. he was doing so well, wasn't he? God is absolutely sovereign, but I desire to make my case before God, because I really genuinely feel I'm being mistreated here. And as you know from the end of the book, God's going to show up and start with, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? And he's going to realize where he once was a proud man that now he abhors himself once he sees the glory of God and hears about the magnificence of an absolutely sovereign God. But at this moment he's saying, but I would speak to the Almighty and I would desire to argue with God. But you, you three friends... But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. You came here to help, make me feel better. Well, it's not working. Oh, that you would be completely silent since you are worthless physicians. And that it would become your wisdom to just shut up. Please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? They claim to be speaking for God. They claim to be speaking on God's behalf. They claim to be defending God. And he says, and yet you lie. And yet you speak unjustly and deceitfully about God. And yet you show partiality, and God wouldn't do that. Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Are you arguing on God's behalf? Will it be well when he examines you? And of course we know the answer is no. No, it's not going to go well for them. Or will you deceive him like one deceives a man? Are you going to say, no, no, oh, we didn't do that. Oh, uh, we didn't mean that. Oh, no. You might get away with that with another human being, but you're not going to do that with God. He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your sayings, your memorable sayings, each one of them, the three of them, have all said adages to him. And he says, well, all those clever things that you've talked about and said, your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. In other words, your words are meaningless. And the things that you're defending and the way you're charging me and you're telling me how guilty I am, all that is is a bunch of burnt ashes. It means nothing. Be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let come what may to me. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? In other words, why should I be responsible for myself? Though he slay me, I will have hope in him. In other words, my trust is in God. The King James rendering of that is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. First time I ever heard that phrase out of the book of Job, I I glommed onto it and thought that there's a key phrase, there's a key moment, there's a key theology. The same way that Jonah said salvation is of the Lord once he was in the fish's belly. Well, after Job had gone through all this, he reaches the point of realizing God in his sovereignty can do whatever he's going to do, and all I can do is trust him, and even if he kills me after all this, I'm going to trust him. Where else am I going to go? He's God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And this also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. It's kind of a clever turn of a thought there that Job has. He says, if I get to argue my case before him... That right there is grace, the goodness of God in allowing me to even be there and argue with him because a godless man doesn't even come into his presence. So if I get into his presence to argue with him, I must be a godly man. And I want that argument. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declarations fill your ears. Behold now, I have prepared my case and I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? In other words, who's going to argue with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only two things do not do to me. And then I will not hide from your face. He's speaking to God here. Do these two things, these two things, don't do this. Just only two things I don't want you to do to me. I I want to get well, I want to get through this, I want to get over the pain, but I still don't want this. The first thing I don't want, don't remove your hand from me. Don't not be my God still be here in my life though you slay me I trust you but the one thing I'm asking of you is that you don't depart from me utterly I'll even endure the pain I'll endure the struggle I'll endure the hardship I'll endure the loss but how do I endure if you aren't with me do not remove thy hand from me and let not the dread of thee terrify me Remember a couple chapters ago, he said, even if he lifted up his head, he was afraid because he was in dread of God. And he's looking for some comfort and his friends have not comforted him. So now he's looking for comfort from God and saying, I'll trust you no matter what you do to me. Just don't take your hand off me and don't let the fear of you, the dread of you continue to terrify me. And then you'll call and I will answer. Or let me speak and then you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. In other words, if it's true, if this is happening because of something I did, if my friends are right, if my friends who have all accused me, They that have defended you and defended your righteousness who have said I must have done something wrong. If that is true, then you need to make it known to me because I don't know it. They keep telling me to repent of it. I don't know what I've done. I haven't done anything that I can think of. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make it known to me. Make known my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face? And consider me your enemy. Why do you do that? Wilt thou cause a driven leaf to tremble? In other words, this is a good verse to read right now in the fall. You see all these leaves that are blowing around. It's one thing that they have fallen off the tree that kept them alive. But now they're being blown around by the wind. And as if that weren't bad enough, do you want them to also tremble in fear over the fact that they've fallen off the tree and are being blown by the wind? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble, or wilt thou pursue the dry chaff? You know, when you separate the wheat from the chaff, the good wheat becomes the the bread and the food, and the chaff just drops to the ground, and once once that happens, the chaff isn't good for anything yet, and he's saying, that's what I'm like. I'm like a driven leaf. I'm like leftover chaff. Are you still going to make me tremble and pursue me to do more damage even though I'm nothing? For thou dost write bitter things against me, and thou dost make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. Thou dost put my feet in stocks, and you do watch all my paths. Thou do set a limit for the soles of my feet while I am decaying like a rotten thing and like a garment that is moth-eaten. We're going to stop there. Because then in verse 14, Job's going to start talking about the finality of death. But I've told you that in advance so that you can decide whether you want to be here next week because, gosh, this is sure a feel-good story, isn't it? Just remember, just remember, that the good news shines brightest against the bad news. And the first part of the book of Job is really, really bad news. Please keep flesh and blood on Job. Don't be too hard in your judgments against Job. He's got three friends that are telling him how guilty he is. And he's got God putting him through this horrible, horrible oppression that none of us would be able to live through. He's lost all his children, all his money, all his cattle, everything. And even his own wife is against him at this point and saying, curse God and die. He's got nowhere he can go. And in the midst of all that trouble, in the midst of the three so-called friends accusing him, and in the midst of the pain and the agony that he's going through, notice what God is doing in his sovereignty. God is still cornering Job into, where are you going to go except to me? And In my life experiences, and I expect it's also your experience, it's just that I haven't ever been you, and so I don't know what you've been through, but I've been me, so I can tell you what I've been through. I know that whenever I go through the real troubles in life, the real trials in life, the real difficulties in life, I always end up right there, which is, where do I go but to the Lord? Where do I go but to you? There's nobody here on earth that can help me. And where else am I going to go but to you with all my problems and all my troubles? Where could I go but to the Lord? And that's what God is doing to Job right now. So that Job would end up saying, all right, this is bad. This is really bad. But even if he kills me in the midst of all this, I trust him. Whatever his plan is, whatever trouble comes into this life, even if he ultimately kills me, where else am I going to go? I've got to go back to him, and though he slays me, still I trust him. And I keep contending that nobody ever learned anything really important when they were comfortable. When life is going good, that's not when you're learning stuff. When life is going good, you're busy dancing and eating and woohoo, self-made man, or going on TBN and selling your DVDs. Everything's just going fine in your life. That's not when you're learning stuff, but let God put some trials on you, some sickness on you, some difficulties on you. Then you're going to learn how dependent you are on him, and that's a good thing. In the midst of the bad stuff that happens in life, a whole lot of good comes out of it because I don't think there's anybody in this room that would argue with me that that's when you learn genuine faith. That's when you learn real trust. And why are you going to hope for something you already have? That's Paul's argument. You're going to hope in God while you're going through the struggles because he's going to teach you how to have hope, how to have trust, how to have faith, how to have the highest qualities, the highest virtues of genuine Christianity. And he's going to teach you that through the things you struggle with in this life. And that's exactly what he's doing to Job here because he's sovereign. But he's also good. And in his goodness and in his sovereignty, he'll make sure that he doesn't lose you. Make sense? Yes, indeed. Okay. Any questions about all that? Anything? Yeah. I have a question. Do we know, does anyone in the book of Job, does it talk about how long this period of suffering was for Job? Do you have a sense of how long? We don't know. The only time frame that we're given is when his friends come to him and they sit quietly with him for several days. Yeah. But beyond that, we don't know exactly how long this went on. So. I agree with your, when you were stating your, what you said was your own opinions about how God can treat people in a way that uh, you know, maybe you question whether they're being treated properly uh, and everything is going their way, whether those are, I guess, genuine Christians or not. and. I mean, I have the same thoughts and I think about that too, but I think the problem is like, when we try to apply that to individuals, because we could easily have come to Job before this or after this and said, well, look how blessed he is. Yeah. He must obviously, um, you know, he's not suffering as other Christians are and draw the uh, incorrect conclusion. Yeah, we have, the one thing we have to be really careful not to do is think that we understand the mind of God. And so we can make some kind of universal rules like everybody who is doing really well in life, God's not for them. So yes, I would always temper that statement with God can do whatever he wants. He made Abraham phenomenally rich. But he made Nebuchadnezzar phenomenally rich. What are you going to say about it? So, and he made the disciples suffer. And he made his son suffer. So but that doesn't automatically mean that if people suffer in this life that they're necessarily God's chosen and elect and that's why they're suffering so yeah I'm just going to leave it at so yeah we don't know the mind of God sovereign God can do whatever he wants to do and he's going to regardless of what we think of it anything else? something amusing Tell us something amusing, Steve. So you announced that we would go to chapter 10. And my wife opened her Bible to chapter 10. And she went. And then she pointed to it. And she said, I thought that said, I loathe my wife. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no. I loathe my life. Life. You read it wrong. It's enough. an L, not a W. <laughs> I was abused. It's the English language. It's your mother tongue. Work on it. I wolf my wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, if there are no other questions, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. goodbye. Say goodbye to Janine. Bye, Janine. Bye, Janine. We miss you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.